Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. And we're going to go right to our friend in Washington, D.C., Bob Nay. Uh, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, as we speak, uh, the President of the United States, Joe Biden, is walking into the residence of President Modi of India. He is there for the G20 meeting. And for the life of me, I have no idea what that means. So please fill us in. <laughs> Well, uh, and my friends in India contacted me this morning. They are all homebound, by the way. There's high-tech parks there in Delhi, and they are all told, stay in your house. Do not go to work today. So I just thought I'd mention that from the inside there. Is that a security uh, issue? Y- yes. Uh, my my friend, uh, I've got a lot of friends that work in these their tech parks. They're amazing, actually, in India. Delhi has a lot of them, and then south in Bangalore and Mumbai. And they got noticed yesterday, actually, to not come to work for three days, just work from your home, and it's all for security for the for the G20. Of course, my friends told me it's because of our president being there. <laughs> yeah, that's their twist. Okay. And um, as far as I can tell, Bob, this this uh, this is an effort by the United States to uh, fend off uh, the, an aggressive China who is making inroads mm-hmm. in the Middle East. Uh, Ukraine is hovering over all of this. Tell us what's going on. Right. Now, there's there's members of the G20. Of course, there's 20 members. And it's it's a diversity. It's not just, you know, in the Mideast area. But, but Argentina, for example, I won't go through them all, but Australia, France, Germany. Um, so there's some European countries. Mexico's in it. Russia is in it. And uh, India, of course. China itself is in it, but they're not attending, which goes to the point of what you said of us trying to make some inroads, especially because China is not there, and the European Union or the European Union Central Bank. And Indian Prime Minister uh, Modi this year is trying to say, look, yeah, everybody's got a position on the Ukraine, et cetera. And, of course, India, uh, like Israel, did not go full force in uh, banning Russian oil because it's tough for both of, both of those countries to do that. But Modi is just saying, you know, Whatever's going on in the Ukraine, everybody has a position, but let's not let that overshadow what we need to do in what they're calling the global south. And that ties into a joint. This is a huge project, actually. I don't know how I guess we fit into it unless we benefit by India and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, UAE. I guess we benefit if they don't go with China. But they're going to announce during this G20, all the countries I said, including ours, they're going to announce a joint infrastructure deal. It'll be this huge highway connection between the Gulf and the Arab countries. It'll be a little bit beyond highway, but it'll be rail railways and then, you know, uh, highways. And it'll go uh, into connect to India through shipping lanes. So it'll be a big economic boom. Uh, again, I hope that we get some benefit out of this. I hope we don't do this and it makes it easier for China to move products. You know, you, you always have to watch that with China. Uh, and I, let's follow along here at home. Senator Lindsey Graham uh, is urging President Trump to support this deal that Biden is negotiating. And uh, Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is part of this. What's going on there? 
Right. On that deal, now you've got the Modi and the infrastructure deal. Then on this one you're talking about now, um, this one, I've got to tell you, I'm going to use a polite word. It doesn't smell good, the entire deal, top to bottom. Uh, and what's happened is President Biden is trying to get a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia to basically have a relationship of sorts with each other, more like economic. I lived in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia back in 1983. It is a business kingdom. They really don't care a lot about the Palestinians, by the way. In fact, it's tough for Palestinians to actually live in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So President Biden is trying to get this deal. Now, on the other hand, uh, Lizzie Graham is going to be going to Israel and Saudi Arabia, and he's urging Trump to go along with Biden. Don't go against Biden on this deal. What does Saudi Arabia get out of this? And, and we've, we've talked on your show about, you know, what Saudi Arabia really want. Well, they'll get some kind of treaty, which the Senate would have to go through, which would be interesting because Graham has been a, you know, has said everything under the sun about Saudi Arabia. be interesting how he reacts to this. There'd be a defense of Saudi, basically, treaty which means we're going to pay something or sell something when it comes to weaponry. Now, the other side note to this entire deal is that Jared Kushner, the uh, son-in-law of former President Trump, uh, was very close to Mohammed bin Salman and Benjamin Netanyahu. He received, Kushner received $2 billion, and that was from the Saudi investment company, which the consultants said don't invest with Kushner. Uh, the consultants to Mohammed bin Salman, but they did invest with Kushner, and his first deal was to do an investment in Israel. So this is kind of, as you can see, this is kind of all wrapped around each other, from Biden to Trump to Graham to Kushner. Yeah. And uh, it, I think that, you know, they really risk out of this one. Maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but somebody's going to say, what on earth went down over there? Oh, yeah, well... Saudi Arabia and the United States, it's a relationship that we should spend an entire show on. Uh, Bob, uh, Peter, senior White House advisor Peter Navarro was convicted of contempt of Congress. He is going to be sentenced January 12th. Uh, this is sort of the first official in the Trump administration to be convicted. Steve Bannon was convicted uh, similarly before that. Uh, Navarro says, before we get to the political significance, I, I was intrigued by his defense, which is, I was in the executive branch, I was working for the White House and the President of the United States, my actions are therefore protected. Does that hold any water? Well, it actually has in the past. You know, this is, when I look at, uh, at this, this is something new for me and those who are in D.C., and the reason I say that, you can look at Eric Holder, who was under Obama, right? Uh, they had a contempt of Congress against him because of the, you know, uh, the guns. I can't remember exactly what they used to call that, but Mexico, we were, right. you, know, you know, trading guns or something. And then uh, Harriet Myers, uh, they were trying to find her in contempt. She was under Bush. You can go back through a litany of people that were found in contempt of Congress. Frankly, uh, Kevin, it used to be like a joke. Okay, they got convicted of Congress, and in five years you find out it. You know, it all went away or they made some kind of deal. They didn't do time, et cetera. This is a brand new era now. Bannon, of course, he did, as you said, got pardoned. But now Navarro, who can't get pardoned. And so it's going to be interesting in January to see what they sentenced him to, because, again, in the past, when this all went from contempt of Congress into the D.C. judicial system, eh, 
it would go three, four, five years, and then all of a sudden you wouldn't hear a word about it, and it was dismissed. So brand-new era, brand-new territory. The judicial system is starting to actually enforce this, which in the future should probably scare a few people that decide they don't want to go down to Congress and talk. Yeah, and, and I wonder why the Justice Department or the 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 D.C. Uh, prosecutors would bring such a case uh, given the political backlash that might come back to haunt them. Mm-hmm. But as you say, we are in a new era. Yes, and you know, the other thing, Kevin, I, I'm asked this all the time on shows and everything. Um, people will say, you know, and will, you know, people will write to me on Messenger, private messenger, and say, well, how come they didn't prosecute Clinton? And how come they're prosecuting Trump? Or how? And they'll ask all these questions. They will compare people. I just use Clinton and Trump sure. as an example. But they'll compare people from 30 years ago. And I try to tell people in my answer, it depends on who's the prosecutor, who's in the Justice Department. And frankly, it depends on what they want to do. Some people are ignored and some aren't. So on this one, uh, combined with all the 90 charges against Trump, yes, uh, Navarro may raise some eyebrows. But again, this all just depends on what Justice Department really wants to do. And here's another show we need to do. Vice President uh, Kamala Harris says that she is ready to step in uh, should something happen to President Biden. I can't think of a worse uh, visual uh, for the president who apparently a, a huge majority of Democratic-leaning voters don't even want him to be the nominee. Yeah, on this one, you know, I served in Congress when Joe Biden was there, of course. And uh, Joe Biden, I can when Joe when you hear President Biden, I should say when you hear President Biden say, "Come on, man," you know you hear that. Yeah. Well, he uses that in a lot of private means. Come on, man, and it's a different inflection. And I think probably, I would assume at some point in time he's going to have Kamala Harris in the Oval Office saying, "Come on, lady," you know, it's, uh, because that she should have said, "I am not addressing." hypotheticals, right? because his numbers are bad right now. Two-thirds, the poll yesterday, and by the way, these are CNN polls, these aren't Fox News, two-thirds of the Democratic-leaning voters simply don't want Biden as the nominee. On the heels of that, just you know, yesterday, Kamala Harris comes out and says, uh, yeah, now she says other things, the president's going to be okay, et cetera, but she goes down the path of saying, I'm ready to step into the role, as others have been. And, in quotes, may have to take over. Her answer, it's very delicate because her numbers are the worst in the history of polling for vice presidents. Her answer should have been, I'm not going down the path of hypotheticals. Boom. Next question. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Bob Nay, we'll see you next Friday. Thank you, Kevin. Okay. We're back, and our guest is Derek Brower, and he is here to talk about a heart-wrenching cover story in this week's seven days about a young man's path through the mental health care system that has led to prison and a murder charge. Derek, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great for you to join us. Uh, we've, I've read Paula Routley's uh, uh, column about what went into this story. Uh, why don't you start by telling us about Roby Mafutu? Mafuta. Yeah, so, so Roby um, 
Roby is a, a young man. He's 22 now. Uh, he was born in the Congo and came to uh, the U.S. when he was five. Uh, ended up in Vermont um, and was placed in state custody following uh, some child abuse allegations uh, against his father and uh, was raised in a, in a group home, went to uh, high school and graduated at South Burlington, uh, was a standout football player and uh, was voted most school pride uh, by his high school peers. Um, but uh, after graduating, he really uh, uh, went adrift and, uh, and then developed a major uh, mental illness um, that's been diagnosed with schizophrenia and uh, ended up uh, homeless on the streets of Burlington, uh, grappling with uh, uh, really serious symptoms and uh, in the process uh, began uh, committing crimes and uh, uh, some very highly publicized crimes and uh, was eventually uh, locked up as uh, as his behavior was escalating and uh, and then in prison last December. Um, shortly after he was uh, had a, a, a mental health episode in prison, he was placed in a new cell with a roommate uh, where he's alleged to have uh, 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 beat the man and, and who later died. Uh, so now he does face a, a second-degree murder charge uh, at age 22 out of Franklin County. Uh, what was he doing in prison, Derek? You know, that's that is one of the... That is one of the big the big questions. I mean, he was uh, he had he's been in prison uh, at least three times now, uh, following uh, uh, charges that stem from property crime uh, that uh, that did that did get increasingly uh, serious. So that the charge he was locked up on was um, a vandalism spree in the South End uh, that actually began late one night. He had nowhere to stay, and he he showed up at a former foster family's house uh, in the middle of the night and asked uh, asked them if, if he could stay there. Uh, they said no. I think it was after three in the morning, and he started throwing rocks through their bedroom window and then uh, the windows uh, of more than thirty other homes in Burlington South End. So at that point. Uh, uh, both city leaders, public officials, as well as uh, a judge, uh, thought that he, you know, he was not safe to be on in the community anymore. Um, and he was evaluated to go to uh, the state's uh, psychiatric hospital, um, but uh, a psychiatrist there determined that he did not need he did not need to be there, and so he was taken uh, to prison where um, he was designated as one of the, you know, the uh, basically the prison's uh, uh, highest level of, of mental health needs. Uh, there's only about 40 prisoners at any time that, that meet this designation uh, for higher level of care. So he was, he was recognized to be very vulnerable in prison. But at that point, there were, uh, you know, the various decision makers that decided there, were no, there was no other suitable placement for him. Uh, so he was locked up uh, indefinitely pending pending those charges. And part of this path began in the emergency room at in room 37 uh, uh, at, at at UVM. Can you talk about his experience there? Yeah, that was that was really I think kind of a central revelation for us reporting the story. Uh, he, uh, as I mentioned, he uh, he became known to the public. Uh, through a series of uh, encounters with police and, and alleged crimes, um, and one of those, he was he was tased by police in in the Old North End uh, a couple years ago, 
Uh, and what we found when once uh, he gave us access to his medical records was that just weeks before that incident where um, where he was stopped and a scuffle ensued and he was tased, he, he had gone to the emergency room for the very first time because he was uh, he was convinced that uh, people were following him and he was seeing and hearing uh, things that indicated to him that uh, that somebody was trying to kill him. And he actually called the police for help. Uh, he hid inside a restaurant uh, in downtown Burlington, called the police for help, uh, and they took him to the emergency room uh, where um, where he was seen uh, by a crisis clinician and, and doctors uh, for you know what they recognized as a as a serious uh, episode of psychosis. And uh, you know, he was ultimately um, he went back and forth into the ER several times. It was a, it was a very intense uh, time in his life. Um, and he ended up after staying a week in the hospital and then uh, leaving uh, before the doctors uh, wanted him to. And um, and uh, it appears that once he left the hospital, he did not have any kind of support system or follow-up care. And so he was on the streets uh, shortly after this, uh, this episode uh, trying to figure out how to um, solve his problems on his own. And it, it went horribly wrong. Um, you write in a key sentence uh – in the story, his descent offers a telling glimpse into the inadequacies of a system that provides limited support during the early stages of psychiatric illness, forcing the machinery of criminal justice to respond when crises result. Derek, we are, this is a, this is a, a, an old record that is playing over and over again in Vermont and elsewhere, where the criminal justice system is forced to deal in a in a blunt way with something that should be handled differently. That's that's exactly right. That and, and that was that was one of the reasons why we felt this story was worth telling in greater detail. And and because uh, yeah, he's by no means is this the first uh, the first case of this in Vermont. I mean, but but that usually. These cases are are almost exclusively uh, become uh, matters of public debate at the point in which uh, they have already the, the person has already harmed somebody else uh, or killed somebody else and is already in prison or facing a charge and, and then the the decision uh, that has to be made is is you know w- whether they are guilty of that charge or can be held responsible for it and that is that is. You know, very late in, in, in the trajectory of, of somebody who has gone through, uh, these systems of care and, and gotten to that point. And, and I think that, uh, this, this story of Roby's story, while extremely complicated, it's, you know, you can't quite say he, he fell through the cracks or was missed. He was, he was, his, his mental health needs were very much known and people were trying to provide care the best they could um but uh but his needs were very much not met and i think uh the more we learned about him the the clearer it became to us that uh it, it, it that that his story could have ended differently um he he had so much promise as uh as a teenage high school graduate um that it, it was it was really heartbreaking to see it go this way and and i think uh, that uh, particularly by starting the story in room 37 in the emergency room, uh, you know, I think my hope in doing that was was to show that uh, that that this story uh, that this was not an inevitable outcome as as uh, as recurring a phenomenon has as it has become. It, 
doesn't need to be that way. And and there are other things that I think uh, deserve to be looked at, ways to um, to improve the system of care so that we uh, don't get to this point where the criminal justice system is trying to figure out um, how to care for somebody that they really just aren't equipped to care for. This story is not uh, your run-of-the-mill story. It's long. It's detailed. It involves Maura Weinberger, Sarah George, the Chittenden prosecutor, uh, uh, Judge John Pact, uh, who wanted him in the psychiatric facility, uh, and just things just seemed to go off the rails. You were granted uh, better access to court documents and health records than you otherwise might have. Can you talk about how you got on the inside of this story? Yeah, the the story began um, as uh, our our initial vision was to tell the story of of both men, the the Roby as well as the man he. Uh, he killed uh, Jeffrey Hall, uh, who similarly uh, was being detained uh, after falling into homelessness. And in his case, uh, it appears uh, his his crimes were related to an addiction. Uh, and and we wanted to chart the, these two men's paths through these uh, you know related but distinct healthcare systems into the criminal justice system, where everything um, went wrong. Um, we so we reached out to uh, you know to representatives of, of both men um, we did not uh, we did not get um, uh, interest from Jeff Hall's family or the, or their attorney um, but uh, you know once we once we could get the ear of Roby's attorneys and, and and convince them to you know to put our proposal to him to speak with us um, and he agreed to um, you know, we then got this deep understanding of his of his story, and it became uh, very clear that uh, his story uh, needed needed to be told uh, on it uh, on sort of its own terms. Um, that that his story was was the story uh, here. And uh, after months of um, discussions and 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 an interview with him, uh, we we asked for his medical records, and his attorneys gave them to us. Um, and uh, that that really provided a, a pretty, uh, you know, f- for us at least, and for me in my career, an unprecedented window into into somebody's journey. And I think it's a really important one because these systems, these social services systems, are so walled off from public view. And if, as a reporter, if you are trying to learn more about somebody's experience in those systems, you can't learn anything, and and you can't fact check anything because. Uh, these organizations, uh, for you know, valid reasons, uh, will not discuss or even acknowledge that somebody was a client of theirs. So the only chance to understand uh, what what these interactions looked like was was to to get their the records themselves. And uh, and and we were really grateful that Roby was willing to provide uh, us with them. And um, you know, they, he gave us everything they had. Uh, from his mental health journey, and it was it was really eye opening. In in thirty seconds, what what's next for him, uh, criminal justice wise? Yeah, well, he's facing a second degree murder charge. His attorneys have uh, indicated that they they uh, will introduce uh, evidence for uh, you know what we commonly call an insanity defense. Yeah. So the case is still in its early stages, um, um, and it really remains to be seen if it will go to trial or if they will strike a, a plea deal. Um, so we really have to stay tuned on that, but uh, he certainly faces uh, many years in prison. Okay. Derek Brower, uh, it's a heck of a story. Thank you for doing it. Uh, you can 
Read about it at Seven Days. It's on your newsstand, or you can go to sevendaysvt.com and get all the details. We'll uh, we'll see. We'll follow this case, and we'll have you back on. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, Derek Brower. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. We'll be back. You're listening to WDEV. We're back. We were going to unleash on you a new feature called Office Hours, where you were going to email me your questions. Uh, the emails have been disappointing. So I am making an executive decision. I'm looking at Danny here through the window. Uh, we're not going to do it. We're going to delay it, and we're going to give you more time to send in provocative emails. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We'll open the phones instead. I've got a long list of things to get to. You can call me at 244-1777, and it's a long list. But a couple of housekeeping uh, notes. I am going to be gone next week. I know there's tears out there, but rest assured the show will go on. I will be hosting the show Wednesday and Friday. I will not be here. I will be somewhere off the coast of Cape Cod, I'll let you guess, and you can call in 244-1777 to figure out where I'm going to be, uh, but I'll be doing the show. It could be uh, being done from a picnic table uh, outside a library with decent Wi-Fi. It could be in a radio studio uh, that will hook up with uh, WDEV. That is, Those plans uh, will be finalized over this weekend. But uh, so rest assured, no guest hosting for me on Wednesday and Friday. Thank you very much, Brad Furland and uh, Pat McDonald. I hope those guys are are doing great. Uh, okay. Uh, if you're like me, you're watching the U.S. Open Tennis Championships uh, at Arthur Ashe Stadium in New York City. Uh, it is fantastic watching. Uh, something happened. In the match yesterday, headlined by American Coco Goff and her opponent, who I just love and I can't, I can't pronounce her last name. I can't remember her last name. Uh, midway through the match, uh, uh, some climate protesters, uh, stood up and started screaming, uh, from the upper deck, uh, protesting that, that, uh, the, about climate change. But an interesting thing happened. Uh, the guy, I think there were two of them, the guy had glued his feet to the concrete floor so they could not remove him, I guess. And there was a, there was a th- more than 30 minute negotiation, uh, with the guy about how to get him out of there. The match was delayed 30 plus minutes. Uh, Goff went on to win and goes to the finals, uh, against uh, the unnamed Russian finalist who competes as an independent because of Russia's uh, in- invasion of Ukraine. Yes, Goff beat Karolina Mahova, who, gosh, just has a great game and w- was terrible in the first set and then came roaring back. Uh and uh, so golf is in the finals. But I found the protest to be about climate to be fascinating. You know, if if you were at an uh, NFL football game or an NBA 
uh, game, the game would just go on. And it seems to me that tennis in some ways is still stuck in this, in this, uh, hoity toity past of everybody has to be quiet during the, during the match, uh, when the point is being played. I, I said on Twitter, uh, our friend from, uh, used to be the sports writer, the tennis writer for the New York Times, uh, Christopher Clary, he, uh, who's been on this show, by the way, talking about Roger Federer and he will come back on the show. Uh, he said, uh, he, he doesn't know, he didn't think there was any way out of this predicament. And I responded by saying, why don't they just keep playing? Um, it's not like it's not noisy in the stadium. Just keep playing. Let the guy shout his climate, uh, his climate protest. And, uh, what's, what's the point? Why do you have to bring the whole thing to a stop and negotiate with this guy, uh, to get him out of the stadium? Um, Sally Jenkins, the famous sports writer, uh, for the Washington Post was there and was on Twitter saying, uh, not only is this protest, you know, uh, a, a bad thing, it's indicative of a larger danger here, which is the upper decks at Arthur Ashe Stadium are, are actually dangerous. Everybody up here is drunk. Uh, they're falling out of their seats. Uh, fights can break out at any moment and security provided by the U.S. Open is, uh, tawdry at best. I thought that was fascinating. So, uh, how to deal with uh, protests at tennis uh, tournaments? Interesting. By the way, Goff is going to meet Arena Sabalenka in the U.S. Open Women's Final on Saturday at 4 o'clock. The men's final will be played Sunday, and that is going to be – both matches are going to be just – I love how, you know, the, the men's and the women's matches are so different, you know. The, the women don't hit it as hard, obviously, uh, and they get, you know, they get around the court a little less quickly, but their game, it's kind of like watching women's basketball. Their game is so precise. It's so interesting because they're a little bit more on the level of, uh, you know, you and I, and we can identify more, I think, with the women, at least I do. Uh, because of the, the the mistakes they make are a little bit more like the mistakes we make, uh, and I find I find the Coco Goff Coco Goff story fascinating. Her father, uh, she she joined the uh, women's tour at age 15. She she's been around for a while. She is 19 years old, and she boy when she goes before the microphone, she is awfully poised, and uh, she's in her first U.S. Open final. Uh, she has a, a balky forehand that sometimes, uh, deserts her, but she seems to rescue herself, uh, you know, to win the match, uh, when you think all is about to go wrong. So she's a fascinating story. Uh, Sabalenka beat the American Madison Keys in the semifinal, the other semifinal last night, which started after 10 o'clock at night. It's ridiculous. Uh, and Madison Keys won the first set, either 6-love or 6-1, and then uh, proceeded to lose the next two sets to Sabalenka in tiebreakers, in crushing fashion. I mean, how you come back from that emotionally is, it's a, it's tough. She's going to walk away and she's going to need some time away because that, she had it. She was there. Uh, she had it in the tiebreaker, but it is, boy, that is a tough way to lose. It's going to be a great women's, uh, final. Okay. 
issue two. By the way, you can call me, 244-1777. Bruce Springsteen is, has canceled the rest of his U.S. tour. Okay. May not be a big issue for you. It's a big issue for me. Okay. The boss is ill and he has something called a peptic ulcer. Uh, I think the man is 73 years old. I've been to 10 concerts. He was my neighbor in New Jersey. Uh, his, his drummer, Max Weinberg, bought my grandmother's house after my grandmother died many, many years ago. And so we got to know Max a little bit. And so from time to time, we, we don't get discount tickets. Uh, you gotta pay full, full freight, but you, you, you can put out a feeler and say, Hey, can I get a ticket to the, this show or that show? Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I was going to go to the show in DC, uh, late, late September, uh, take two of our kids who live there. It's not to be, uh, the shows in Albany, Syracuse, uh, DC and elsewhere have all been canceled. Bruce has got some repair work to do, uh, and I hope he's got a good doctor. Bruce Springsteen canceling the rest of his U.S. tour. The guy has been through Europe. Uh, the guy's been on tour for months, and I don't know how he does it. Three and a half hour shows. So no Rosalita and no Thunder Road. It's going to be a dark, dark rest of the uh, late summer and early fall. But uh, get better, Bruce Springsteen. Capital City Farmer's Market uh, tomorrow, still up on the green at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. And, of course, the Whammy Bar in Callis at Maple Corner tonight. Uh, tonight is, uh, oh, it's Friday, so open mic was last night. I don't know who's performing, but uh, Whammy Bar, always the best pizza, the best craft beer in town, and uh, a, a tiny little place to uh, hear great music. Okay, the Orleans County Fair, uh, you know, they're advertising on WDEV. Got to tell you, I was glad to hear the Tunbridge World's Fair advertising as well. That's my fair, my hometown fair. September 14th to 17th, I will try to get the president of the fair, Gordy Barnaby, on this show uh, to talk about the fair and any changes they've made uh, over the last few years. Best thing about the fair, if you have kids... Go Thursday. At least in my day, the tickets were eight bucks and that gave you unlimited access to all the rides, all the fairs. The biggest issue for us, uh, back in the days when our kids were little was, do you let them go off on their own? At what age do you let your kids go off on their own at the Orleans County Fair in Barton or the Tunbridge World's Fair? Uh, I'm not sure. It seemed to be, our, our kids seemed to own the fair. You know, you get there and they team up with all their friends. Uh, and as parents, you didn't want to let them go off on their own. But the idea of stalking your kids from ride to ride at the Tunbridge World's Fair seems to be, seemed to be a little much. So as you can expect, I was a little more hands off than, than my, uh, spouse who, uh, liked to keep a, a tighter grip on the kids, but, uh, no, no danger was, no damage was done. I suspect, as with most World's Fair, when you get past Thursday and into Friday night, and especially Saturday night, I was going to say no danger lurks, but I don't know. There's a, there's a little danger on Saturday night in the beer hall at the Tunbridge World's Fair underneath the grandstand there. Uh, I don't know who the 
who the musical act is going to be on Saturday night. There will be, as I recall, no demolition derby. Uh, I think the, I think the liability insurance got a little much, but I'll try to get Gordy Barnaby on the show to talk about that next week. Let's take a break. We're still taking your calls, 244-1777, and we'll talk about all, all lots of other things, including we'll get more details on this guy stuck in the cave in Turkey. Oh, my. He's two-thirds of a mile underground, and he's sick, and somebody's got to go down and get this guy. I mean, this makes the, the kids in the cave, that makes that look like a tea party. So we'll be back after this. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. You can call me at 244-1777 before we head out on the weekend. Uh, I'd love to uh, take your calls. Uh, we have to talk about Peter Navarro. Peter Navarro is a former trade advisor to pres- former President Donald J. Trump, uh, who was convicted yesterday on two counts of criminal contempt, contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena from the House Select Committee that investigated the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. Now, this is the second Trump advisor to be found guilty. The first was Steve Bannon, the former strategist uh, in the White House. Navarro is a Harvard-trained economist. Uh, He is 74 years old. Each count carries a maximum of one year in prison and a fine of up to $100,000. I doubt he's going to go to prison. Uh, And after outside the courthouse, after the, the verdict was read, he said this. I'm willing to go to prison to settle this issue. I'm willing to do that. But I also know that the likelihood of me going to prison is relatively small because we are right on the issue. Now, what is the issue? The issue is an unusual test of congressional authority. Remember, civics class, three branches of government, an executive, a legislative branch, that's Congress, and a judicial branch. That's the Supreme Court and all the federal courts. The executive branch, of course, is the president. That's what's called the separation of powers. Since the 1970s, uh, referrals for con- criminal contempt of Congress have rarely resulted in the Justice Department, that's the executive branch, bringing charges. Navarro was indicted last June on two misdemeanor accounts of contempt, one for failing to appear for a deposition and another for refusing to provide documents in response to the committee's subpoena. Now, Navarro, in his defense, said that President Trump at the time ordered him to defy Congress. Uh, So now why did the January and so therefore he was his behavior and subsequent book and memoir and public comments about what he said were election irregularities were uh, protected. That behavior was protected because he is a member of the executive branch and the legislative branch, i.e. Congress, has no authority uh, to issue that subpoena. That was tested in this court and the judge said that it, it, this was a, a legitimate prosecution and the verdict happened yesterday. It's pretty clear Navarro is going to appeal. His sentencing is in January. Uh, and so th- this question of what we call executive privilege, we're going to hear that word bandied about a lot coming up, 
uh, around all of these prosecutions of uh, f- the former president and all of his uh, acolytes and aides. It's going to be really, really interesting uh, to see what happens. Uh, the, the, the prosecutor said this. The defendant made a choice. He did not want to comply and produce documents, and he didn't want to testify, so he didn't. The defendant chose allegiance to President Trump over compliance with the subpoena. That is contempt, and that is a crime. Now, Navarro's defense lawyer, Stanley Woodward, said that the government had not shown that Navarro's failure to comply was anything other than inadvertence, accident, or a mistake. Woodward presented almost no evidence in Navarro's defense and instead sought to poke holes in the government's case that Navarro had deliberately disregarded the committee. So that's interesting. He didn't really claim the executive privilege defense. Uh, and, and the reason I'm talking about this is this is sort of giving we, the listeners, a roadmap for what's going to be happening coming up in all of these other trials. Remember, 19 people, including the former president, were indicted by a Fulton County, Georgia grand jury in uh, saying that they were trying to uh, engage in a criminal conspiracy um, to overturn the election and engineer a coup d'etat. Uh, that those these arguments that we're talking about now, they're going to come up in this trial. Uh, Navarro is interesting because. He is, along with Steve Bannon, the author of of a three-part report on purported election irregularities, as well as his own memoir, in which he talks about something they invented called the Green Bay Sweep, aimed at overturning the results of the election in key swing states that had been called for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. So uh, we're going to see... These arguments coming up, not just in the Fulton County, Georgia case, we're going to see them pop up in the uh, two cases against Trump, uh, accusing him of trying to take over the government and uh, cause the insurrection, and also his handling of top secret national security documents. So uh, stay tuned uh, for that. That I'm, I'm sorry to say... Uh, we're, the rest of this year, this is what we're going to hear about. When you turn on your radio and your TV and read your newspaper, you're going to inevitably see these stories. Let's think of it as a civic le- civics lesson. Um, it's, yeah, you get tired of the politics and the pettiness and all that stuff. But there is, this is an opportunity for us to learn about how government works and how it doesn't work. So we'll keep talking about it. That's our show for today. My thanks to a, our guests, uh, Abe Berman from One Care Vermont, Bob Nay, Derek Brower for that fabulous story in seven days, uh, and everybody else who makes this show possible. If you want to be a guest on the show or send us a suggestion for a topic, send me an email at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. doesn't have to be a fancy press release. Just send an email. Our go- goal at the show always is to illuminate and inform. The show becomes a podcast at WDEVradio.com, and of course you can listen live to the show on the internet. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. I will 
be in your ear next Wednesday and Friday, although I will not be physically present in the studio. We'll have a guessing game as to where I'll be. You can find me at KevinKLS.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. I'm on Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow me. My podcast, Conflict of Interest, examines the issues we deal with on this show. I'll be back uh, next Wednesday. Keep sending me your email questions for office hours. We'll read them on the air and try to answer as many as we can. As always, we'll talk politics and everything else going on in Vermont and the nation and everything on my mind and yours. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Danny McGivergan and all the folks at WDEV. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer. Hello, Ken Squire, WDEV. <laughs>